You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, the newest member of the Accounting Matters podcast team and Embark's resident Tampa market president. I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. Thanks for being here, Adam. Of course. On this week's episode, we'll be pivoting from fair value and diving deep into the world of business combinations, ASC 805. I'm joined today by Will Carroll, valuation practice leader for Embark, and John Erickson, valuation service line leader for Embark. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Zach. Good to have some new faces. (laughs) Good to have some new faces indeed. Well, so Adam, thanks so much for making some time for us today. I know that we spoke a lot about fair value last week, uh, discussing the deal life cycle and what that would look like. Tell me a little bit about how business combinations, specifically 805, uh, would fall into that deal life cycle uh, world. And why is this important to businesses that potentially are growing, expanding, um, and, and some of the accounting implications that we, we need to be thinking about? Yeah, we, we've talked about, you know, business combinations in, in prior episodes. I think what's going to be unique about today's conversation is um, the fact that we'll, we'll talk about the elements of where fair value measurements come into play when, when it relates to business combinations. So obviously having our, our evaluation folks in the house to help us kind of navigate that conversation will be useful. But, you know, really a lot of times what drives the need to do kind of the purchase accounting under ASC 805 is like what you said, where businesses are looking to acquire other businesses or groups of assets for a variety of reasons. And it could be, you know, strategic uh, investments to grow in a particular geographical area or market, maybe expand products or services, or maybe just they just want to build the size of their business overall. Um, there can be a number of reasons why they may enter into that type of transaction. And, you know, the first thing they have to do when they enter into any of those transactions is really, you know, at least from a U.S. GAAP perspective, is figure out what subset of accounting they should be applying. And so a lot of times you'll hear people refer to we've got to figure out whether or not we acquired a business or whether or not we acquired, you know, a set of assets, what, you know, namely called an asset acquisition. So the way that typically works, just as a refresher, and I know we've we've done past uh, episode on this specifically, too, so I'll just point listeners to that, to that episode if they want a little bit more detail, but just at a high level, kind of how that works is there's essentially kind of a two-step process that you go through to figure out whether or not the transaction you've entered into is a business combination or an asset acquisition. And so the first step is what's known as this screen test. And so the screen test more or less is looking at whether or not when you're looking at kind of your set of assets that you acquired, um, whether any, you know, substantially all of the fair value is concentrated in one specific asset or a group of similar assets. If you have that or you trip that kind of threshold, it's not technically a threshold, but, you know, theoretically a threshold, you know, you would you would fall into having an asset acquisition. It would default to that. If you don't, then you kind of move into step two of the analysis, which is evaluating whether or not the transaction meets the definition of a business. And so, the definition of a business, there's a couple things you got to think about. You know, the first thing is whether or not you've got outputs present in the transaction. So generally, if a if a business you acquire is producing revenues, revenues are considered outputs. 
Um, so you would follow one set of guidance where you just look at whether there were inputs in the transaction as well as the substantive process. Um, on the other hand, if you were to maybe acquire like an early stage you know, entity or something, something that's pre-revenue, in order for that transaction to qualify as a business, you know, you would have to acquire an organized workforce as well as inputs that could essentially develop or create outputs. So you go through that whole analysis, you know, you either end up with a business combination, which would be subject to ASC 805, or on the flip side, you would end up with an asset acquisition, which goes into the subsection guidance in 805-50. So great point, Adam. So after you've done this screen test and you've determined whether or not it's asset versus business, what happens next? Where do we, where do we want to head? Maybe just backing up a sec is, you know, I think the, the critical thing to think about is, you don't want to shortcut that assessment of business combination versus asset acquisition because the accounting models diverge quite a bit at that point. So just to maybe hit the highlights on some of the key differences. And obviously this will play a lot into if you do, you know, engage evaluation specialists to help you out, kind of how they're assessing the the underlying accounting for you guys with the with relation to the fair values. But a business combination, you know, more or less is going to require everything to be measured at fair value. There's, you know, limited exceptions for certain things, but almost everything is measured at fair value on the acquisition date. You know, a key difference there between a business combination and an asset acquisition is that an asset acquisition uses what's known as a cost accumulation model. So it's more or less based on the relative fair values of the assets that are acquired. So it's a little bit different approach. Business combinations, you know, they'll result in creation of goodwill or a bargain purchase in most cases, whereas an asset acquisition does not. So, you know, those are just some of like the maybe higher level um, differences between the two models. There's a bunch of other things. And we've also done a podcast on differences between business combinations and asset acquisitions. So another plug for Check that episode out if you if you want to understand maybe some more of the you know minute differences that exist between the guidance. But um, I think the big thing here is just like how you're measuring what was acquired is significantly different between a business combination and an asset acquisition. Okay, so that's helpful. So now that we've got ourselves a business combination, John, why don't you tell a little bit about where your team comes into play? Yeah, no, thanks, Zach. So in the business combination, first you have to determine your consideration paid, and then what assets you acquired to go along with it. Consideration can be tricky with different um, terms and uh, negotiations between different parties, particularly where you have earnouts or stock compensation or, mm. or key employees that you want to incentivize to come along with that business. It, um, you, you have to go through other determinations, whether it's consideration for a business or whether it's stock compensation or, or other things. So the simplest would be cash for for assets, it's easy to value cash. Um, a lot of companies use stock to acquire other businesses. They assume debt, which would also need to be fair valued. And then when you get into different earnouts, you get into more complicated um, valuation techniques around Monte Carlo simulations or option pricing models, which often give a lot of surprises to clients. So a lot of the earnouts are negotiated in commercial terms, but when it comes to accounting, there's a pretty strict framework of how you, how you value those. And so that's where we get a lot of surprises and where we can be very helpful. Do you see a lot of companies trying to do any of that work themselves? <laughs> I feel like a lot of clients are always looking to take a shortcut and maybe ultimately they, they attempt it and then they'll come to you guys kind of like, you know, last day of the audit or whatever to like, hey, we need help here. We didn't do this right. Or this is way more complex than we thought. Is yeah. that something that, 
you would recommend companies just avoid taking on themselves or what would be the deciding factor to maybe involve someone like yourself to right. in the equation? So these are accounting valuations and there's a lot of work that goes into getting a transaction done commercially. So there's a lot of incentives to structure these uh, earnouts and different things the way they are, but accounting is usually not the primary consideration. Right. So a lot of clients anchor on, uh, different numbers, what the max payout is or what they, they expect via their budget or other things. And I think a lot of times there's just a surprise that there's a very uh, detailed accounting framework that their auditor is going to want to see. And if that's late in the process, it's just a lot harder to, to catch up when, um, you know, the deal's not fresh in your mind. So I, you do see it. Um, oftentimes there's a material difference um, between what what's expected and what what actually happens, particularly where some of the earnouts go to uh, former employees of the business, and whether that stock compensation or consideration can be a very significant difference. So I think uh, it, it's important for when the transaction happens, start a conversation with your auditor and um, talk about what you know about the purchase price allocation, business combo, valuation process, and socialize it with them. They've been through it many, many times, um, and they can, they can give you advice and uh, point you in the right direction or um, also point you to, to people who can help you. Yeah, so, Will, that's great segue into the allocation uh, step of this business combination. Talk to me a little bit about what that would look like from market participation perspective, PP&E, real estate, intangible assets, any of those things, and uh, some of the considerations that we need to think about um, around those. So after you've determined the consideration that's available for the allocation amongst the assets, the, the pr- next step is to identify what assets and liabilities exist uh, in the transaction. Liabilities could be an asset retirement obligation, a supply contract or a lease obligation that um, is out of the out of the money somehow where it's uh, unfavorable. Um, those are probably the most common liabilities that we see uh, some or some kind of payable that needs to be fair valued. Uh, on the asset side, it's a uh, asset. The assets list, the list of possible assets is is pretty long. Uh, we start off with what what's the primary driver of the transaction? What asset is attractive that is going to allow you to achieve the forecasted cash flows that you expect that this business can deliver to you? And um, I'll start off with with. Uh, uh, some of the intangible assets that that could exist. There might be a, a customer contract that you're stepping into the shoes of and are going to enjoy that. You didn't sign up the contract, but you're enjoying it on a go-forward basis. Or there could be customer list. Those customers drive uh, revenue or uh, um, have a relationship with them where you can rely on, on revenue uh, on a go-forward basis. Uh, there might be intellectual property. Intellectual property could come in the form of patents or proprietary formulas for some type of a, a device. Could be know-how or some other code or patent that that exists. 
all of those could be uh, reasons that differentiate your business or the, the target business from others and, and drive revenue. Uh, and I think you raise actually a good point here when you're speaking about these different intangibles is that a lot of times what you guys are valuing is something that the acquiree may not even have recognized on their books, right? Because a lot of these different intangibles were internally developed. So obviously there's no recognition for them on the balance sheet. But as an acquirer of that business, these are things you have to think through is like, what are some of these other assets that maybe weren't recognized previously that we do have to assign value and recognize now? Because you guys aren't necessarily from a valuation side helping fair value every asset that they acquired, right? There's specific assets you guys are probably being brought into the fold to help clients, you know, figure out what, you know, what they are and then how much value we should assign to those assets. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think intangible assets, as you said, is, is one where you're introducing a new item on the balance sheet, right? Oftentimes. So a customer list, if, you know, business could, you know, or usually organically grows those lists, but until they're acquired, there's no asset or trademark or other item right. on their balance sheet. And the methods to value these are, are pretty esoteric. So h- how do you value a, a trade name or you know, the existence of customers? Generally for an intangible asset, the most significant asset, what we see most often is that customers um, are the most significant intangible asset for, for most of the businesses that we see. And we use what we call multi-period excess earnings method generally to, to value those. And so this puts you into this sort of theoretical world of if I had, if I had to pay rent to all the assets that support um, this business, how much profit's left over and that excess profit is, is what's attributable to, to this customer list. So you, you will find revenue associated with those customers, attrition rates associated with uh, losing customers over time. Ultimately, you'll look at contributory asset charges. So I'll pay rent for the, ca- the tangible property. I'll pay rent for the trade name. I'll pay rent for a trademark or, or technology. And then after everything's left over, I discount that at a, an appropriate discount rate. And that's how you get a customer relationship. So I think um, or a value via the MPM, which is often used for, for customers. And it's a very strange world because I think in a commercial setting, People don't usually value a business under the theoretical rent that they would pay for, for the different components. But when it comes time to account for it, it's, it's different. And so you ultimately need to put that on your balance sheet and in your income statement and go through some of these methods that a lot of times it's just helpful to work with somebody who's done it a lot of times and, and, and gone through the audit process. On that. So what kind of information do... So if you're assisting a client with valuing, let's say their, you know, their intangible assets, like what information are you requesting of them that they need to be thinking through to prepare or have ready to help assist the valuation aspect? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say um, the most frequently used piece of data to value intangible assets is the, a forecast, a forecast of the future cash flows Um, that, it's used uh, on the list of possible intangibles. It's used in almost every single intangible asset analysis. There's various, so it's used again and again and again. The different methodologies, uh, uh, methodologies are different between valuing each asset. The MPM for customers or what the primary intangible is leverages the, the forecast in a DCF. Um, a, a relief from royalties might be used to value 
uh, a trademark or trade name. It uses a, a form of a discounted cash flow to do that. Um, a with or without method could be used to value an intangible asset, uh, maybe a, a license or a permit to to conduct business. That also uses the um, leverages the discounted cash flow. So that forecast is, and I, and I tell companies when they go through an eight hundred five valuation, the forecast is important. And it's it's important because we use it over and over and over. And um, that's also in the forecast what um, in a prior episode when when you and Matt were talking about the um, market participant uh, premise, oftentimes a forecast that you receive from a company captures synergies that might be business and entity specific. And uh, we, we need to make sure that the any synergies market participants would also enjoy and they're not entity specific. So um, kind of a double importance on the uh, on the forecast of future cash flows because we use it. That we use it often and it's got to meet the, the the boundaries set forth in, in the market participant uh framework well it's just interesting thinking about you know, from the fair value construct the level one two and three three inputs so when you get to, into things like intangible assets you they're almost always a level three input so there's not an active market for trade names or, or something else that you can go and say well this other trade name went for this so mine must be worth x so intangibles are some of the more esoteric valuation methods that are generally level three inputs but there's other assets that uh, are usually in a purchase price allocation that are, are different, like PP&E, which we often use a, a cost approach or a, or even a market approach. When we talk about the hard assets, I think it could be um, land or building, any kind of leasehold improvements for for office space or, or otherwise. Um, there's also um, revenue generating equipment like machinery and factory equipment. Um, support equipment like furniture, office furniture, office equipment, uh, computers, IT stuff, um, and then mobile equipment, uh, which has a, a visible secondary market in order to to go look for um, level two inputs and stuff like passenger vehicles. Uh, forklifts is one that we often see in in quite a few industries. Um, and each of those uh, assets and, and intangibles or, or uh, property, plant, and equipment hard assets uh, requires a different set of data in order to analyze. And the data available really drives the analysis that's, that, that's performed uh, in order to fair value those assets. And so there's a lot of different kinds of assets, obviously, that we've talked about, <clears throat> pp and and land and... Um, items that are under the cost approach as well as intangible assets. And ultimately, once you're done with all these different kinds of assets, you have to put them all together to, to make sense and to make sure that that allocation reconciles back to uh, the overall consideration paid, uh, the rates of return that are implied from the transaction, and the rates of return for that asset class. So, so something like cash, if it was involved in the transaction, would have a much lower rate of return than an intangible asset a tractor trailer or something like that would, would also be lower than a, a trademark or, or ultimately if there's a residual where we valued all these assets and there's still consideration that you can't find an asset for, 
then you would have you would have goodwill, which will generally have the, the highest rate of return would be on goodwill or some kind of going concern value that you're acquiring that isn't attributable to a um, identifiable, tangible or intangible asset. So one of the ways we do that is via a um, a WARA reconciliation. So what's the return on each of these asset classes, the IRR, and then market participant uh, cost of capital. So you should, the rate of return you get should be commiserate with the risk of those cash flows. And, and oftentimes um, you'll have a rate of return higher than the cost of capital, but usually it's associated with some kind of growth factor or or a synergy um, that, that's included in that forecast. And so w- once you're done with this, there's a lot of implications for for a purchase price allocation, uh, particularly in a business uh, a business combination uh, is is, a, is usually not routine and is often material. And so a lot of an organization's effort goes into getting a transaction done, but if you're not conscious of the accounting implications how that's measured for all the stakeholders can, can be, um, you know, can lead to surprises if, if you're not careful. So tangible assets from a, a book perspective, will usually be depreciated on some kind of straight line method associated with their, their remaining useful life. Intangible assets can, can vary qu- quite a bit. And so it's hard to think how long does a customer list last? What kind of amortization period should I have? Same thing with a trademark. You know, sometimes we see an indefinite live trademark, or would you put a life on it for for something less than that? There's a lot of factors that go into it, and, and really experience with how what industry norms are, what the forecast looks like, and, and, and other things. So, do and you then guys I'll- help direct clients towards useful lives if they're unsure? Like, you give them parameters, or if they are like leaning towards an indefinite life on a particular type of asset. Does that, is that something that you challenge or is that part of the process or do you really rely on them and their like assertion? I'd say it's, it's it's a process and uh, there's multiple inputs into that process. I think there's the, what the data for that analysis shows us on, on, for that transaction. There's also the call it history of us helping others in similar situations and what they have done for those for the remaining life of those assets the auditor has a seat at the table as well and yep. they they have also a history in those circumstances and so you all you smash all those together and it's a collaborative process yeah there's not a right or wrong answer right. on you know, <clears throat> right. it's you, an you, estimate right like right. coming up with that useful life or the indefinite life but but I, I do think it's helpful in the in the process just having a lot of reps on on what you see in especially in a particular industry um, we also benchmark our results against you know, other other financial statements and, and really have a comprehensive process so that um, oftentimes we provide a range of, of estimates and sh- just try to get a number that that's reasonable. Um, but the, the implications, you know, with goodwill or an indefinite lives intangible, you, you wouldn't hit the income statement um, going forward, but you would remeasure for impairment under a more um, restrictive standard. Right. And so it, it, it does have a purchase price allocation, does have direct implications to, to the income statement going forward, uh, both just in pre- preparation of the financial statements, but also when you think about just commercially for the stakeholders who want to do another acquisition, when they go lo- look at their P&L, how is it reflected and how do I measure you know, your ability to do transactions? 
ultimately a lot goes into the purchase price allocation. Right. So this has been really helpful. Adam, anything else that we need to be thinking about um, as we we finish the valuation and what, what that's going to look like from an accounting perspective? Yeah, I think it, it's important to recognize that the valuation work that's done, you know, either in-house or through the use of a specialist is really, um, it's a critical input, but it ultimately goes into the company determining what is their, you know, opening balance sheet. So we, we mentioned that term purchase price allocation, um, which is more or less essentially establishing that opening balance sheet. Um, once that's ready to roll, you know, companies have to figure out a way how they ultimately book that. So they got to record that purchase price allocation um, into their you know, general ledger, thinking about the, the disclosures around the acquisition that will result as well, pulling those together. Um, and ultimately, this all kind of gets buttoned up into usually a technical memo that you, know, you either bring in outside help to assist with that from an accounting advisory perspective, or you know, acquisitions are pretty routine in your organization. You may have um, the expertise in-house to pull that together. But just kind of keeping in mind that you know, you'll get a valuation report, but usually that's not where the buck stops. There's usually additional work that has to be layered in on top of that. So keeping that in mind as you're, as you're working to complete your acquisition. Well, perfect. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate everybody taking some time out of their day to be here uh, and discuss this topic. Thank you so much for joining us on Embark's Accounting Matters podcast, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.